James. Rough. What percentage likelihood do you give it that AI will have killed us by 2030? 60%. 60%. I didn't want to make it a sure bet thing because I don't want to seem like a guy who's a bit of a hysteric or a doomer or whatever. I didn't want to make it 50-50 because it makes it sound like I don't know what I'm talking about. I was going to go with 50-50. Yes, yes, I don't want to do that because that seems to imply. Well, why would you listen to a podcast of two guys who say there's a 50-50 chance of this? Imagine a podcast called 50-50 with just guys (laughs) expressing no particular view. Not interesting. I go 60% because it gives people sort of the tang of danger. Mm. All right, maybe I'll just counter that with 20%. Okay. You know, and within that 60%, I think it's a 20% chance that it'll be kind of like a Terminator-type situation, mm-hmm. you know, like armoured attack droids with, like, big machine guns, like Gundam kind of things. Uh, so you're saying, like, there's a 12% chance of that? 20% chance of that. 20, 20% of the 60%. Of the 60%. Third. Exactly. Yeah, okay, okay. And then 80% chance that it will be some sort of nuclear event, like the an AI will cause a nuclear sort of detonation or something like that, or release, like, a covid COVID two. They'll work out a way to just annihilate humanity. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to sending out like an individual like robotic thing. I think that's a bit naff, but I, I feel like if the AI had a bit of a sense of humor about it, it might do that. Okay, okay. My twenty percent scenario is just like a horrible accident occurs. A hundred percent of my twenty percent. I swear a blood oath that I believe that twenty percent chance of a horrible accident. Yeah, blood oath. That's very vague. There's a twenty percent. That's very chance. vague. Like, what is a ho- what is a horrible accident? What does that entail? I'm swearing a blood oath that there's a twenty percent okay. chance of a horrible accident. A horrible accident. Okay, cool. <laughs> Who is the first to predict that computers were going to kill us all? It's kind of hard to pin down. It's been sort of suffused in the air for a while. Mm. So the reason we're kind of talking, we're we're scaring you about robots kicking down your door and annihilating your family with like a a laser minigun (laughs) is sort of how I picture it. Um, Um, I'm more in the camp of just... A horrible accident. (laughs) Like global, horrible global accident. Well, uh, okay. Oh, I see what what you're getting at. I see it was like, okay, like two billion simultaneous electric car accidents or something. Yeah, something like that. That could be, yeah, that could be cool. AI panic is sort of the the order of the day mm. at the moment. Yeah, people yeah. are panicking about AI. Pe- people are starting to freak out about AI again, which is kind of like quaint in a way. Mm. You know, we've gone through a few different periods of AI doom throughout history. There's probably something to analyze about that too, in that society changed quite rapidly, especially in the computerization era. In the early, like in the 70s and everything, okay, there are these devices that can compute and calculate better than humans. That's a kind of scary change then. Your brains kind of get used to it. Then there's personal computer revolution and that freaked people out a little yep. bit. The internet kind of freaked people out a bit, but then you become ingratiated with it. It's yep. just a normal part of life. And so you stop freaking out. It's been it's been a while since we've had this kind of like, we've had technology freakouts. Like people are worried about Facebook and how it's turning everyone into racists or whatever, or making everyone support Trump. There are like a little panics, but we're kind of getting back to the AI freakout, which is pretty old school. And it's understandable why. ChatGPT and like the image generation, the current tranche of AI products have sort of swamped the market. People have started to see not only the fact that, you know, you can ask ChatGPT anything and it'll give you an answer that's human-like and 
70% accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also the whole emotional aspect of it, I think, is like really- Unsettled it's people. It's rattled people, yeah. It's unsettled sure. people. And they're seeing computers do things that are sort of emergent. And the people who made ChatGPT or like OpenAI are seeing that people do stuff with their application that they didn't think about people doing. Six months ago, if you'd said like, get an AI to write an essay for you on a very specific niche topic about- corporate governance or what have you, yep. that wasn't a possibility. Yeah, or it was only a possibility for people who knew what they were doing. Yeah, now, yeah. anyone can do it. So, yeah, like it's totally understandable why people are, are kind of freaking out about it. And this is thrust into the spotlight again, this concept of AI safety or AI alignment. Mm. And in tandem with that, people predicting complete and utter doom. Yeah. You know, I don't think anyone thinks that chat GPT is going to cause the end of the world, but- a lot of people do think that it's kind of like one big... It's a uh, harbinger. It's, a, it's exactly. It's a harbinger of doom. It's mm. one big step in the direction of the world being destroyed by really, really smart computers. Yeah. Um, so this week on Downround, the case for AI doom. So before we get into like the modern arguments for it and why everyone's freaking out right now and what everyone's angle is, it is kind of worth, as we always do on Downround, let's go back. Yeah. Let's go back 50 years, 100 years, 1,000 years. Evolution. Yep. Uh, religion. Revelations in the book of, uh, book of Revelation in the Bible. Mm. You know, people have been scared of world-ending events for as long as we can imagine. There's an old meme about, like, if you ask a historian a question, the answer will always be, it's more complex and happened a lot earlier than you think. Yeah. That's what we're doing. That's, That's not true. That's what we're doing, but in kind of a fun way, unlike those, you know, losers, those pencil pushers and eggheads. But, yeah, so modern computer science has been around for the better part of getting close to a century now, and the early sort of computer scientists weren't overly fixated on the idea of what they were building being sort of the, the end of humanity. They were, there wasn't their primarily thought. They were more worried about developing programming languages that you could uh, talk to computers more fluently with. That was for the people to, work with, to figure out later. Yeah. But the mid-20th century was overflowing with science fiction writers who became obsessed with this stuff. Everyone knows, you know, HAL 9000 from 2001 A Space Odyssey. Harlan Ellison, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Scream, classic story about runaway AI enslaving a group of people after the end of the world for its amusement. Mm -hmm. uh, Demon Seed, there's a classic. Actually, it was kind of ahead of its time. It was by Dean Koontz, who's not a very creative writer, but he did write a book which was about an AI that was built in a lab that invaded someone's smart home and took it over and started to terrorise the people that lived in this smart home. Like COVID. Exactly, kind of, kind of a, <laughs> exactly a lockdown event. That was before... Smart homes isn't really a thing, but this was like the early 1970s. So, you know, science fiction writers have fixated on the idea of like computers and artificial intelligence eventually going on a, a long arc to uh, killing us. Well, yeah, I.J. Good, who was a colleague of Alan Turing, Turing obviously making the first computer or computerization, back in 1965 postulated about an ultra-intelligent machine that could design even better machines there would then unquestionably be an intelligence explosion and the intelligence of man would be left far behind. Thus, the first ultra-intelligent machine is the last invention that man would ever make. That's scary stuff. So this was the matey who, like, 
was next to Turing inventing the first computer was like, oh, hold on. If these things could program themselves, what use are we? Yeah. Mm. Tell you what, and they didn't listen to him, and now we've got TikTok. <laughs> Food for thought. Yeah, as we were kind of saying before, this, this discourse wasn't substantial or thought about incredibly intensely in the early ages of computing. The science fiction guys were freaking out about it. It sort of bubbled around in the background. Some people throughout the 70s and 80s were sort of perking up and saying, hey, if things keep advancing at the the rate that we're doing right now, we could actually have a problem on our hands that could sort of get out of humanity's grasp. This might become a serious problem. Mm. And we'll go on to explain in more detail exactly what those fears look like. We will. But the history is important. But now we're, we're flying through a whirlwind tour of technological history. But the modern kind of freak out about AI, before we even get to like chat GPT, and what is actually quite interesting, a lot of the modern AI safety discourse comes out of one internet forum. It's always nice when something starts on a forum mm. and you can point at that forum and say, you had to be there. You had to be there posting with the big dogs. <laughs> I'm not sure I know you're talking about. It's a forum called Less Wrong, sort of popularized itself through the, the 2000s and beyond. And it was a rationalist forum. So to give you a bit of an idea of what less wrong was like, it's a bunch of guys, very smart guys, and I say guys specifically because I think it was 97% men, Mm -hmm. who considered themselves really, really smart and rational and basically G'd each other up to sort of make their thinking even clearer and more rational and more logical. And they were trying to figure out all sort of the, the problems of the world and how they could be approached from a really like engineering, clear-headed, rationalist perspective. Yeah, objective, analytical. Exactly. And who started it? So it was started by a guy named Eliezer Yudkowsky. He was one of the, the main founders who, and we'll get to him in a little bit, but he was he is one of the big voices in AI doom at the moment. Mm-hmm. But uh, from Less Wrong started a whole bunch of movements, one of which was the effective altruism movement. Mm-hmm. And the effective altruism movement we've brought up on the podcast before because this was one of the this was the creed really actively espoused by our friend Sam Bankman Fried, mm. the FTX founder. Yeah. Whose friends are currently snitching on Exactly. Hate to see it. He and his li- see his it. life's over. He's not gonna inaugurate the crypto revolution. He'll he'll have to watch the crypto revolution from behind bars. How sad is that? And basically what effective altruism was, in in brief, was the idea that Let's make our like philanthropy and altruism and efforts to better humankind really targeted, really rational, and really sort of like thoughtful. Mm. They they get lost in all sorts of stuff like, you know, what's the most effective way to spend our our donated money? Yeah, and it might be reinvest into a business to make that money way bigger, so you have more of an impact. Yeah, and then spending all of that on mosquito nets in in Africa because mm. we figured out that's the best way to spend your money to maximize human utility. Yeah. But one particular segment of this effective altruist community is dealing with what they call existential risk. So it's the idea that it doesn't matter if we buy a million mosquito nets or if we really target our charitable giving to maximize human potential. There are like these risks on the on the horizon that could obliterate humanity. Yeah. And that stuff's not going to matter. So yeah. this is the most important stuff you have to work about, think about. That includes global pandemics. Yeah. You know, the rationalists were some of the first people to really freak out about COVID before governments did. This also kind of flywheels into the fact that 
one of the interesting things about effective altruism is they always need more money and lots more money and therefore the justification for making a lot more money. It's how you get FTX, essentially. Yeah. That's not, not what the episode is about. But no. yeah, like something like a global pan- a pandemic and, and uh, avoiding it, it's going to cost a lot of money. Yep, exactly. And so, and this is one of the things they're obsessed with. Same with climate change. Climate change, yeah, big They're also obsessed. But the other one is existential AI risk. doesn't matter... How what we do to better the lives of humanity and make sure people have access to clean water and adequate nutrition. None of that stuff matters if a crazy computer is going to kill all of us. <laughs> I mean, they're not wrong conceptually, <laughs> which is you know it does sound insane. But if you spend all your day or your whole day posting on the internet forum, these are the sort of things that start to occupy your yeah. your every waking thought. So you can actually attribute a lot of like the contemporary AI discourse and the AI safety, AI risk to these rationalists that sort of spawned out of this less wrong forum and spread their tentacles throughout the tech industry. It's a very like tech industry kind of like, I was about to say religion, and it is, but it's also like a little bit culty, this sort of AI stuff. I don't know. You could kind of draw parallels to things like the Freemasons in that it, it's also somewhat networky, right? Like- oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, they, they took a real reputational hit with the FTX stuff. Mm. Um, which they haven't really recovered from. And there's, like, all sorts of different institutions that are... You can pop on their forums, by the way, and, like, these guys are prone to a TLDR. Like, it's unlike any forums. Like, the Effective Altruism forums, which I had a peruse of during the SBF scandal, um, they're long posts. Oh, no, they're very long posts. Lots of um, exhaustively reasoned thinking on things, which, you know, the average person may find this insufferable, and it is. But for these guys, this is how they become absolute peak thinkers about mm. important stuff. But look, the, basically the point I'm trying to get at is that a lot of the contemporary thought about this actually spawns out of this movement and their leading lights, a lot of them are kind of associated with that. So look, we'll get into getting into like the core of their sort of arguments. But I think one one thing that I'll mention right now that sort of spawned directly from the less wrong forums and became kind of like an internet meme creepypasta if you've heard that phrase, like, you know, spooky stories that get shared endlessly, mm. is something called Rocco's Basilisk. And you can Google this if you like, and you can see some, like, spooky campfire-style YouTube videos of people retelling it. It was a thought experiment that was posted on Less Wrong about AI. And um, I just want to clarify before I get into it that I don't find it particularly compelling, but a lot of people got scared of it, like they'd watched a horror movie or something. Um, but it's the I believe I- my brother is a proponent of this um, oh, oh really shout outs if you're listening <laughs> all right so the Rocco's basilic basilisk is this thought experiment that says that if there's going to be a superhuman intelligence at some point in the future and it's malevolent it's evil it doesn't have our best interests at heart for whatever reason it is going to identify all the people who in the past didn't work to bring it to life who didn't dedicate their attention to making sure that this intelligence came to life in the, in its mind, sort of preventing it f- itself from coming to life, and it's going to take revenge on them and kill them. Mm. In a godlike In manner. a godlike way. So it's going to punish people for not having the foresight to help it come to life. As I said before, I don't find that particularly compelling, but it gives you a bit of a sense of the kind of stuff these people are thinking about. Yeah. They're occupying this. I was thinking about all sorts of like stuff that probably sounds quite deranged to you and I, mm. but you know, this is the way that they're thinking about AI risk. Yeah. And I will say, as a precursor, right now, 
if I were the listener, I would come away from it thinking these guys are loons. But I will say I think they do have some compelling arguments, which we will go into. We'll get into. This not being one of them. So essentially then we've gotten into the modern discourse on AI alignment. Yeah. Um, and to define what AI alignment means as a field, AI safety is another one that you come up with a lot. Uh, well, I think they're, they're two different things, right? Yeah, but they're interrelated. But AI alignment in general just means that how do we build artificial intelligences that are generally aligned with humanity's goals? Yeah, and, and human morality, right? Yeah, they won't do immoral things in order to pursue whatever goal we give them. Exactly. So, like, the expectation is that, you know, we have moral codes and laws and whatever that apply mm. to how humans conduct themselves from the level of, like, criminal law all the way up to, like, international law and how nations are supposed to conduct themselves. Mm. How do we make sure that any artificial intelligence doesn't necessarily take the most brute-efficient way of doing things, but abides by those kind of rules that we've, we've, yeah. we've put down? Like, play chess, but don't cheat. Yeah, exactly right. Or help me book a movie ticket, but don't obliterate every single person that lives on Earth. <laughs> yeah, in that quest. And we'll get to why that could be a problem, yeah. I guess, a little, a little bit later again. Another precursor. Sorry to keep precursing. But yeah, like don't steal the money in order to buy the ticket or whatever. Like how does it align with human values? Like <laughs> tell me that the search thing that I'm looking up is incorrect without swearing at me. You know? <laughs> yeah. So, tell me that actually like the Swans haven't actually played Collingwood this season without calling me a moron. Exactly. And saying that I'm being a bad person. Uh, yeah, everything like that. Oh, I should, sorry, say the reason why I think that they're possibly two different things, I don't. we haven't really come up with like a definition just yet the ai safety thing i feel like gets kind of more construed into the censorship thing like asking an ai like is it good to segregate races and it's saying i'm not going to answer that you yeah know, that's yeah that, you're right that kind of falls under the ai safety stuff which and- which kind of illustrates what i was going to say which is that these two conversations are sort of happening at the same time yeah now that we have something like you know chat gpt and and what have you that looks it seems much more powerful than what we had before. Yeah. And as I said, there's all sorts of weird emergent behavior and it's giving answers to people that it's never given to another person. Like it's all a bit unpredictable. Yeah. So all of a sudden, everyone who aren't people that sit in the forum all day thinking about theoretical future super intelligences mm. are like, oh shit, this stuff is actually pretty buck wild. Yeah. So we have the, the two levels of the conversation have suddenly kind of hit us at once. On the one level, people being like, is this ChatGP stuff going to cause my death in 15 years? Yeah. Are we going to see like a super intelligence that wants to wipe me out like in a fucking 2001 A Space Odyssey or whatever? And then on the other side, there's streamers rightly being like, I think it's a bit fucked that you're making porn of me. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. And that, that'll fall to, or you've got the right-wing guys who spend their days freaking out that, you know, they the, the AI refuses <laughs> to say that it would say the N-word to stop a nuclear <laughs> holocaust or whatever. <laughs> I just still think, like, say so we're jumping ahead a thousand years, and like a lot of humanity is kind of wiped out ten thousand years, but enough of us survive. And I guess a fallout situation, but like ten thousand years in the future, and they go through the annals of history, and it's like they dig up, like, oh, what was the conversation like about this AI alignment, and like, were people aware that this could possibly be a problem? <laughs> and like, it all comes back to this argument about the AI refusing to say the N word in order to saving humanity. <laughs> like, this, well, the first instance historically we can find of like, the discourse around this is with the AI say this racial slur. <laughs> yeah, but they're separate. That's what I guess we're trying to say. Like, the AI saying the N word to save humanity. 
I think is separate from the AI alignment thing to a certain extent. AI alignment is more about like, how do we make sure AI is not going to kill us or hurt people or whatever yeah, yeah. in order to it's achieve li- its goals versus us putting on kind of censorship? Yeah, it's literally like the like the Isaac Asimov, like three laws of robotics yeah. stuff that he came up with in iRobot and whatever, but a much more complicated undertaking because you know, all sorts of stuff come up about not just, I think everybody on earth can agree that we don't want to design a computer that will shoot us with a gun. I think we're all on the same page. Well, there. I don't know. Ask DARPA. But there might be- all like dog. Yeah, like the, the um, Boston Robotics yeah, dogs. Yeah. But, you know, there's all sorts of like cultural contingencies about what we consider moral for a computer to do versus not. Anyway, um, so a lot of those things come up. It is worthwhile mentioning at this point while we're on the sort of conversation of AI alignment that OpenAI, who are the, the big dogs in the world of AI right now because they come up with GPT and DALI and uh, all the rest of their line of products, actually started as a non-profit laboratory, which was like intended for responsible development of AI and like furthering the goals of AI alignment. Mm. Their founding sort of principles were like, all these different companies are sort of getting into AI research, but we really need someone to be thinking about how we're building it to align with human goals. Yeah, that was the purpose. It was... And, and it, that's why it's not for, it was originally a not for profit. It was originally not. I for, think it's still technically one, but it's all kind of complex. You know, it's America. They're good at turning these to things. To figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's a commercial enterprise now. It's partnered with Microsoft. It is the one at the front of the line of pushing this stuff forward. Yeah. Just blindly commercializing and pushing it forward regardless of what. Oh, let's, t- let's plug it into a search engine. Let's go. Yeah, yeah. Know? Let's make it cheaper and more accessible. Let's get as many people using AI as possible, which I'm an AI alignment guy, but it seems like. In the responsible versus irresponsible camp, it, you know, it's a little bit, a little bit more to the the former. The other thing I think we should probably clarify is the term superintelligence, which you've used a number of times. Just to quickly define it, superintelligence is more like AI is better than everyone at chess, right? It's super intelligent. It is an intelligence that we acknowledge. Like, oh, okay, you can't beat an AI at chess. Yeah, we're going to the point. You know, we're past the days of Gary Kasparov. Yeah, Kasparov versus Deep Blue. Deep, no, Deep Blue. You know, that was a crazy thing back then. But fast forward to now, no one can beat a good chess AI at chess. They, yeah. we, we simply do not have the mental capacity to preempt the levels of moves that it can. Yeah, and I mean, they've gone beyond that, right? Like it was originally like they fed, like the training data set was every single game of chess ever. But now they can just tell the AI what the rules of chess are and it'll work out the optimal move in every circumstance and we just accept it. Okay, okay. People we can't, can't be the computer. People can't do that anymore. So people now think, you know, a super intelligence, a theoretical super intelligence is one that can sort of apply that mindset but to like everything. Yeah. Everything that humans can do, it can do better. And we probably should define as well, and the chess example again is, is an example of narrow AI. It's given one task within the confines of the rules of chess and the next move on a chessboard versus a general AI, which across like all different topics, not just confined to one yep. certain space, not just ChatGPT is a large language model that basically it's confined, it's narrow AI insofar as it's predicting the next word that is most likely to come. The chess AIs are predicting, you know, the next move. A general is like across everything. You yep. can kind of feed it anything. It'll understand the context and be able to make whatever move towards its goal. Yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, this is when people talk about AGI, you'll see that term a lot, artificial general intelligence. That's what they mean. Some sort of AI that's like generally intelligent 
on the the width and breadth of what a human mind is, but way better and way better at all, all sorts of things. Yeah, a super intelligent yeah. human mind. And the, the the example that comes like humans are fairly generally intelligent. We know we can do a lot of things, mm. but there's stuff that we're just not wired for. An example that comes up a lot is like computer code, computer like coding. There are some people who are like good at it. Even like the smartest coder on the planet is not that good at it. The human brain is not naturally aligned towards that. They need to like train a lot, a lot of reference material. They need to like absolutely dedicate their life to it. Yeah. And they might become like relatively good at it. Whereas like it's easy to imagine a computer as like sort of chat GPT does now when it draws upon all of its training data on coding that could be better than a person because mm. it, it has such an extensive processing capacity and, and reference library and what have you. Anyway, that's the idea of like a, a super intelligence, something that's way smarter than us on all sorts of metrics. Which leads us to Bankless. That's right. Bank, the Bankless podcast. In a perfect alignment, speaking of aligned, a perfect alignment of 2020 thought, 2020 culture. Yeah. yeah this, this is like the pivot point of like human reality right now. A crypto podcast. Called Bankless that literally at the beginning starts with, our goal is to have you using the bank less. Yeah. <laughs> That's also like interspersed with ads literally for like various ex- exchanges and like custody services for your crypto and they decided you know we got to get an ai guy on here we got to do an ai one because everyone else in crypto is pivoting to ai so we need to tell our audience what's going on they brought on the guy that i mentioned before eliezer yudkowsky one of the founders of less wrong who also has a foundation that has millions and millions of dollars going into the idea of ai alignment he has like as I said, become one of the biggest doom prophets mm. of the AI universe. He's the guy who thinks, you know, after 20-odd years of and more of writing about AI alignment, he's realized maybe this is not possible. Yeah. And maybe we're doomed no matter what we do. For some reason, they decided he was the guy to do what I think they thought was going to be like a, a relatively normal podcast about just like explaining what was at stake and what, what are the big advances and what, what is the average like degenerate crypto trader needs to know about? Yeah, well, I mean, they say towards the, the end, like, oh, we have all these questions about like AI and the metaverse and like AI and crypto, but it doesn't seem appropriate now to kind of bring them up. <laughs> this, this interview kind of went semi-viral on certain parts of the internet because, as you said, they expected someone to tell them how AI was going to make the metaverse poppin'. <laughs> And what they got was a guy saying that you're you're all going to be dead within 10 years. In practice, what's that like? Well, unless it's limited, narrow superintelligence, I think you mostly don't get to observe it because you are dead, unfortunately. What? (laughs) Stern words. Stern words, indeed. Basically, as you said, he's been dedicating his life to AI alignment, this idea of ensuring that the AI doesn't kill us all. But he's basically saying, it's too late, hands up. The AI is going to kill us all. He gives a timeline of, I actually found this kind of amusing in there. He's like, like, when's this going to happen? And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't know when it's going to happen. And he gives some example of something that you couldn't predict. So I'd say any time between three and 15 years. It's like, whoa, like that's, <laughs> like we're not talking like hundreds of years or whatever. No, it's happening very he's, soon. He's basically saying like, yeah, within 15 years, all humans will be dead. Yeah. AI basically will, and he's not saying that like, AI is some evil thing that's going to hate humans and intentionally go and kill us all, but AI will kill us through some accident that we can't predict. And I will say, I don't think he did a very good job of explaining the argument. Like, why is AI going to kill us? Yeah. How are we going to let that happen? Surely we can just program them 
not to kill us. And it's almost like he's so blackpilled that he's basically just like, no, I've been working on this my whole life. They're going to kill us all. And when asked, what do you need? Like, what would you need to ensure that they're not going to kill us? And he's basically like, one, I would need to have hopefully made a mistake, which is definitely possible because he's very rationalist. And it's like, I could have made a mistake and I'm hoping that that's the case. I've made some kind of mistake and there is some alternative path that I haven't thought of. And B, I'd need at least $50 billion to hire the best people in the world, put them on an island and for them to work 20 hours a day for us to solve this problem. And maybe, maybe we would come up with a way to stop AI killing us all. Classic rent-seeking, you know? <laughs> Classic. He, well, one thing that's kind of crucial to say is that he doesn't think that ChatGPT is actually like that consequential to no. what, to, to this whole thing. Like he doesn't think that ChatGPT or the current generation of AI stuff that's like wowed the world is like, you know, dramatically further along in the path of like seeing total human oblivion or no. whatever. But he says it's evidence basically that this stuff is progressing really quickly and that the current companies that are sort of in charge of this stuff, be it OpenAI or, or Google or Meta, are really only sort of like pursuing the commercial imperative of like releasing products as quickly as they can before someone else does. Which uh, leans into the idea that they're going to re- release something that will accidentally kill us all. Yeah, because the, the core argument that over, without getting into any specifics about what that might look like, is this idea of what he calls, and a lot of these AI doomers say, is like the intelligence explosion. The idea that at some point, as they sort of make the models larger and larger, more sophisticated, better at processing data, at some point they're going to hit a point where they start learning stuff really, really quickly, sucking up troves and troves of, of data, their intelligence will exponentially increase mm. and then we won't be able to like do anything about it. Yeah. As I mentioned before, I don't think he did a particularly good job of explaining exactly what the doom scenario is. Yeah. So we went and investigated and I think now it's time for us to share exactly what the doom scenario is. That's right, yeah. So like it's all well and good to be blackpilled, but, you know, come on, you still got to communicate your message. If you want donations to your like not for profit foundation. foundation that is like or the down round podcast yeah, exactly. donations to our Substack. Okay, so the whole thing comes down to goals. You set an AI a goal. Let's yep. take the chess example again. Yep. The goal of the AI is to win the game of chess. The way it does that is by assessing what move, what piece, what chess piece can I move next that will be optimal towards me winning this game of chess. What is the best next move to make? Like, which piece can I move once to make that move? But what if the AI had the ability to say, like, hmm, my goal is to win this game of chess. If I could just access a bit more data and have a a little bit of a broader model, that would help me optimize for the next move better. The AI would, of course, because you've told it, like, your goal is to win the game of chess, it would go and seek out the information necessary, put it into its model, and then it will be better at making that next chess move. Cool. Okay. It's still optimizing for the goal of winning the the game of chess. You know, what if it could rewrite parts of its code to be more efficient because like humans might have written the code and it's noticed that actually it could be more efficient by rewriting a piece of its code and that would still help it win this game of chess that it's working on. Then a human has the ability obviously to shut it down midway And someone's going to go over and shut down the computer because whatever, it's just running a zillion just tests of an AI versus another AI or a human in chess and it's just going to turn the model off. It would be towards the AI's goal of winning the game of chess to stop that human from turning... 
interesting episode. Now that we've come to the end of it, obviously the last half, it's more kind of our opinion and our speculations and the case in general for like, why will AI kill us? Yeah, if for God knows what reason you found all that compelling, I'm not one to tell you why you think the things you do, but the rest of it is for our premium subscribers. It's behind the iron curtain. You've got the base, you've got the history, probably sated your curiosity a little bit, but to understand what the downright voice really think, cough up. No, seven bucks. Honestly, you can sign up, seven bucks, hear the end of this and never listen to another. Well, actually, what you should do if you're just really smart is listen to the end of this episode right now. Go to Substack, obviously. Just Google Downround Substack or go to downround.net. Sign up, seven bucks. You'll hear the end of this episode in part two. Set an like alarm or whatever in your calendar. Set a little notification in your calendar for obviously like 30 days time. Cancel Downround. Remember to cancel Downround. You'll obviously get the second half of this episode. You get our bonus episode next week, a bonus episode the week after that, a bonus episode the week after and that. If, you, if we post it in time, and if you still want to cancel at that point, you're joking yourself. Yeah, email us and tell us why, and we won't give you a refund because you got four friggin' episodes, including the end of this episode. But point being, like, come on, surely you want to hear what our take is. Why we're we gonna die or not? I mean, a, this is literally life or death. This, life, this could be life or death to you, and also you deserve a little treat. <laughs> yeah, come on. <laughs> 